Go ahead and open up your Bibles and meet me in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be reading just the first three verses uh, this morning. Once again, that's Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. This past week, I had the opportunity to travel to Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, to, to visit the headquarters of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. So they have a conference there every year for new workers in the Alliance. And uh, it was a great privilege just to see the heritage of the great denomination that we belong to and the, the history of making the gospel known uh, among those who don't know it. Uh, it was wonderful. And in my travel time, as I uh, was on the plane on Monday out there after praying, it was uh, very much clear that given the decisions that were made here at FAC about our future and my change in role, uh, I needed to preach on something different than the Revelation series this week. Um, it was impressed on my heart, and I turned to God and said, "said I don't, I don't have anything to preach on." And then He promptly reminded me that in, indeed I do have a passage uh, that I've been preaching to myself for the last eight or nine months that we're going to look at today. And so I found it fitting to just take a break on our series from the Churches of Revelation this week, but we'll pick up on it next week. For now, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Let's look at that together, and I'll pray, and we'll begin. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. And now, Father, as we come to your word, would you uh, give us your spirit? Would you help us understand this text and would it transform us, Lord? Would you translate the words of a mere man uh, from your spirit into uh, words that are from you? Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this brief time as we look to your word and look for guidance and wisdom, Lord. Would you draw us to you? In your holy name I pray. Amen. It is a great privilege and honor for me this morning to share in the preaching of God's word for the first time as the senior pastor of First Alliance Church. I appreciate the applaud, but let me remind you that this is not about me. This is about Christ and him crucified. Now, in this role, there have been many times in the last eight months where I have weighed the gravity of such role, and it is certainly with fear and trepidation that I step into the position. However, I know, and you know in Scripture, that in our weakness, in my weakness, there is strength in God. And so we depend on him together for this. I very much understand that this is not a position uh, on a pedestal, but rather a position in the trenches. 
It is not a position of prestige and power. It is a low position of washing feet. My wife and I, as we discussed this role during our interview with the elders, uh, my wife put it so eloquently and described it most clearly when she said that we were signing up to be the lowest servants. If you told me that I was going to be here eight months ago, I would have told you that you were crazy. The thought had crossed my mind that someday I would consider senior pastor ministry, uh, but I didn't need to consider that for at least another three or four years. I had this perfect plan for my life, and it was going very well. (laughs) And I loved the plan I had for my life. It fit perfectly. A wise man once told me that you have a plan for your life and God has a plan for your life and your plan doesn't matter. (laughs) God has a funny way of throwing curveballs. And if I could be transparent for a moment, the curveball in my life, the greatest one I've ever faced occurred last year, December 10th, as I sat down over lunch with Pastor Mark. And he explained to me that God was calling him away from FAC. My entire world was turned upside down. He had asked me on behalf of the elders if I would assume some added responsibilities to help us get to a more permanent solution. And I told him I needed to go home and pray about it and talk with my wife about it. Uh, that evening, I couldn't get to, to bed. I, I stayed up till about one in the morning because, you know, one does not sleep when their world has been turned upside down. And then three hours later at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up because, you know, one does not sleep when your life is turned upside down. After laying in bed for about a half hour, I gave up trying to go back to sleep and I decided that I was going to take a walk outside in December in Erie. <laughs> with a brisk 30-degree temperature outside. I spent about three hours with the Lord that morning. I had an extended conversation with him that morning, and when I talk about having an extended conversation with God, it looked much more like a wrestling match. I was wrestling with God in that moment and telling him, God, I am not good enough to take on the responsibility you've asked me to take on. I am not old enough to take on the responsibility that you've asked me to take on. I am not smart enough. I am not the man for the job. And Lord, I am weary. I am, I am faint-hearted. I am not strong enough to do this. And in my time with, with, uh, with God that morning and being in God's word and being in prayer, I would love to tell you that God kind of gave me a little pep talk and a, a pick me up and said, no, you can do it. But the reality is he just came back at me and said, I know you're not good enough. I know you're not smart enough. I know you can't do this, but guess what? I can. Amen. And so would you just trust me by faith to follow you? In that moment, I was taken to this passage. I had what people from the Alliance would call a crisis of sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying there was a deep submission to the Holy Spirit. In that moment, in that intense moment, as I read this passage, I looked to 
God and I said, Lord, I cannot do this. But by faith, I know you can. And so I'm surrendering to you and I am submitting to you, to your plan for my life. This passage that I came across that day has proved to be an anthem for me these last eight months. I would love to tell you that I didn't struggle during this stretching time, but the reality is I did. Very much so. But in those moments, I was always reminded to fix my eyes on Jesus. I learned because I had to learn how to depend for the Spirit's strength every single day for my own strength and perseverance. So, I thought it would be fitting this morning as we turn the page on this chapter of FAC's transition to explore this passage. And perhaps you can come along for the ride. As I just share with you what this passage means and and what it has taught me over the months, perhaps uh, you'll be able to relate. You can look at this and you you say, in my life, I'm weary and faint-hearted. I've been there. I'm in a stretching time right now. That's me. As this passage has been of great help and encouragement to me over these last eight months, I hope that it is for you as well. And so together, let's go to God's word in verse 1, starting with that first phrase. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who, who are these witnesses? And what is their purpose in our passage this morning? Whenever you read that word, therefore, in Scripture, it is always pointing to something that was written prior to that passage. It's always, uh, essentially, it should prompt us to look back. Therefore, what is this referring to? In our context, this is referring to chapter 11, Hebrews 11, where we are introduced to these heroes of faith. This passage has been most notably referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame, but don't get me wrong. It's not because uh, these men and women have done anything significant. It's merely because they knew where to put their faith. They knew uh, where to put their faith, to to put their faith in God. They were real people with real challenges, but they had a real belief that God would come through. People like Noah, who by faith built a giant boat in the middle of the desert because God was uh, forewarned him. Or people like Abraham, who was told by God to leave his homeland in order to inherit a promised land, and by faith, Abraham set out, and he didn't even know where he was going. Or people like Moses, who by faith refused to live a life of luxury as an Egyptian, and instead chose to identify with the people of God and be mistreated like one. And if you sit here and you look at all of these situations from a worldly standpoint, you'll catch yourself saying, that doesn't make any sense. Why on earth would Noah build a a boat in the middle of the desert? That's just ludicrous. Why would Abraham leave everything he ever knew and set out on a journey that he doesn't know where he's going? That doesn't make any sense. Why would Moses give up a life of luxury and not just give it up, but exchange it for mistreatment? This just 
isn't logical. This doesn't make any sense. But as you continue to read these accounts of these faithful men and women here in Hebrews 11, you come to the end of the story and see that time and time again, every time God comes through, God called them out of their comfort. He called them out of which was familiar and said, I am going to do amazing things through you, but I'm not going to show you the end goal just yet. All I'm going to show you is that first step. And you need to trust me to take that first step. Can you, by faith, take that first step and trust that I am leading you into something amazing? That I am leading to you a place where I fulfill my promises. And so in light of Hebrews 12.1, the entire purpose of Hebrews 11 recounting these men and women of faith is to show us how they are witnesses to God's faithfulness. What are they witnessing? They're witnessing God's work and how awesome God is. They are testifying, if you will, to the fact that when God promises something, he always comes through on his promises. And we should be encouraged that we not only have a few witnesses to God's faithfulness, but a great cloud of witnesses. If you're in a court of law, one witness who testifies is good for the case. Two is even better. But here we have in Hebrew 11, a a slew of them, a, a bunch of them, a cloud of them, right? And then in verse 32 of chapter 11, the writer says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. He's just going on and on and on. He's like, I could tell you a million more stories of the witnesses that have seen God's promises come through, but I simply don't have the time. Time would fail me if I tried to tell you about all of the witnesses that we have to God's faithfulness. And the wonderful thing for us is that this great cloud of witnesses is not limited to only those listed in Hebrews 11, but to all believers everywhere who have faithfully run this race and can testify to God's promises made and promises kept. We could fill entire libraries with the stories of men and women who bear testimony that this race can be run successfully and the rewards are great. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, what are we called to do? Run. Run. Run the race set before us. It would be very easy for us to look at the world and be crippled by its fallen nature and decide to remain stagnant. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Look at all these people that have run before you and use them as an encouragement to spur you on to keep going. You see, the fear is that in the face of our sin and the brokenness of the world, we'll be discouraged and just stop running. There is an active temptation in our life to remain stationary. One of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is remaining stagnant. 
And so the author of Hebrews is saying, as believers, we are runners. Get into the race. Don't just move along. Don't just drift along. Get moving. Let's get into the race. Let's not try and ride the coattails of these witnesses. Right? We're not riding the coattails of their faith. We have our own faith. We're running our own race. Let's use them as an example and then set our sights on the finish line. Let's run. Let's get in this thing. And what exactly is this race that we're running? It's very important to note that we be very clear. This race is not salvation. Okay, the finish line is not salvation. We're not running for our salvation. We cannot earn salvation. Yet some reason there are many people in this world and perhaps in this church who have this mindset that they are running this race for salvation. This is mindset. If I'm, if I'm just fast enough, then I can get to heaven. If I'm just strong enough, I can cross that finish line of salvation. If I'm just good enough, then maybe, just maybe, I can reach the finish line. I can reach heaven. We have to understand that if this is what you're trying to do, let me urge you to stop. Because that is an unwinnable race. And not only is it unwinnable, you will not be able to finish. Because we know from Scripture... The only way you gain access to heaven and salvation and a restored relationship with God is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews is written to a bunch of believers. That's the intended audience. And so they've already obtained salvation by grace through faith. Right? In this race, salvation isn't the finish line, right? As if it's the end all goal to believers. No, in fact, it's the starting line. It's the starting line. Some of us as believers live in such a way that as if you've achieved the pinnacle of Christianity when you become saved. But let me tell you that when you become saved, that's just the beginning. Jesus has so much more in store from you. you. You walk as if there's nothing else in your Christian walk, but that is a complete and utter lie. Once you become a believer, you've been invited to the race. You see, we do not race to obtain salvation. We race, we run because we are saved. So what is this race? If we're not pursuing salvation, what are we pursuing? What are we running after? The race is the pursuit of godliness. The race is the pursuit of godliness. One commentator writes that this is an impassioned plea to grow in maturity. We are running to become more Christ-like. And how beautiful it is and how comforting it is to know that this race, this pursuit of godliness has been set before us. I actually like how the NIV translates this because it actually uses the word that the race was marked for us, that it was marked out for us. It reminds me of when I was in high school and I would regularly explore the wooded areas around my school and every single fall I would actually see trees that were spray painted with the letter X. They were marked. 
And for the longest time, I had no idea what these markings were for until I met a buddy who ran cross country. And he explained to me that those X's spray painted on the trees are markers which tell us where to run in cross country. As a cross country runner, they literally had the race marked out before them so they knew which way to go. So they knew how to run the race. In the same way, the believer, the follower of Christ, has the race marked out before them. They know how to run the race. We know which direction to run. And if the race is the pursuit of godliness, which we've already established, and the pursuit of godliness has been marked out before us, take great comfort then that we have everything we need to become like Christ. We have everything we need, God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit to become godly men and women who are like Christ. And there's an important lesson here. All believers are headed the same direction. We're all going towards the finish line, holiness, godliness, right? What the writer of Hebrews is concerned about is not where you're going on the run because frankly, that's already been marked out for you. What the writer of Hebrews is concerned about is how you run. Are you following the markers that have been set out before you that will guide you into spiritual maturity? And are you not only following the markers, but are you pursuing them passionately as if you're running to win a prize? He's not concerned uh, necessarily um, as, we, as we try and discern God's will in, in, your, in your life. It may not be as important where God brings you as much as, as who he is shaping, how you conduct yourselves getting there. But perhaps... Which job you take, what decision you make in your life is not as important as your pursuit of holiness on your way there. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor, has a great quote on this in a book called Just Do Something, talking about discerning God's will. He writes, we're often preoccupied with the destination, where God wants to take us, but maybe he's most interested in who he's shaping along the way. The point is not to disparage well-meaning Christians from wholeheartedly seeking God's will for their lives. It's just that maybe he's already told us. You want to know what God's will for your life is? It's holiness. It's righteousness. Where does God want you to go in your life? He wants you to be Christ-like. That is the mark of the race. That is the path that he has marked out before you. And so let us run and run well as we pursue righteousness and holiness and godliness. In order to run well, there are some things that we're going to need to do, right? If we uh, want to run effectively, we are going to have to drop a few things. This is what it says in verse 1. We need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us and hinders our ability to run, that hinders our ability to pursue godliness, 
Now let's start with sin. We get this picture of it kind of like entangling us up, tripping us up, or we're just going to fall over flat on our face in our Christian run if we've got this sin. And it reminds me uh, kind of a silly story of a game that we used to play at, the, uh, at our youth's fall getaway every year, right? What we would do is um, there'd be four different teams, and we'd have a relay race. And we would pair them up, and they would have to get in this giant box. Think like refrigerator box, right? And two people would share it, and we would cut just the, the tiniest little hole in there for them to, to see. And then they would have to run to, to, to a cone and run back and then switch people out. What the students didn't know about the game, for those who have played for the first time, is that as soon as the race starts, all of the adult leaders get to take out their frustration by pegging dodgeballs at these boxes. It was awesome. (laughs) And one of my favorite tricks to pull if we were outside was that we would have these inner tubes from another uh, very dangerous and deadly game. uh, And we would take these inner tubes and like I would kind of step right in front of them and just throw this tube at their feet and their feet would get all tangled up in the inner tubes and they would fall flat on their faces. (sighs) We love our students. In this illustration, I'm sin, right? It's comical, but that's what it looks like in life when we're holding on to this sin that so easily entangles us. We can't run effectively. We can't make it to the goal as we run to be Christ-like. We have to set those things aside because godliness and sinfulness cannot coexist. You cannot spiritually mature while holding on to entangling sin. So cast it off and leave it behind where it belongs because it is hindering you in ways that you don't even realize. And you won't realize it until you let it go. And you'll notice that we're not only called to lay aside sin, but we're also called to lay aside every other weight that gets in the way. This forces us to ask the question, to ask not just, is it a sin? John Piper, another pastor, would tell you that this is the lowest question that you can ask in life. Is it a sin? You don't just ask, is what I'm holding on to right or wrong? You ask, does it keep me from running? In my pursuit of godliness, in my pursuit of holiness, in my pursuit of righteousness, in my pursuit of love, in my pursuit of becoming more Christ-like, there are things in my life getting in the way regardless of whether they're sinful or not. There may be things that you are holding on to, whether uh, that are not bad or sinful in and of themselves, but they can still be getting in our way. There are hobbies, interests, ambitions, anxieties, wealth, and even relationships that are dragging you down, hindering your pursuit of godliness. None of them necessarily wrong, but still have an effect on your race. And here's the tricky thing. Sin, that's an easy one because sin is universally wrong for all people at all times. 
You could ask the question, is this right or is this wrong? And if it's wrong, then I absolutely cast it off. However, these other weights, this idea about throwing off weights that may not be sin is a little bit more ambiguous because the weight that's holding me back in my pursuit of godliness may be different than the weight that's holding you back in your pursuit of godliness. For example, from scripture itself, in the Old Testament, Moses laid aside the privileges of being Egyptian royalty for the sake of his God-given mission to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt from bondage. However, Joseph ruled Egypt second only to Pharaoh, which fulfilled his God-given mission to deliver the Israelites from famine. Joseph was able to rule Egypt, but for Moses, in his context, it was a hindering weight. And so you need to identify this very morning what these weights are for you. What is impeding your race, your pursuit of godliness? As we throw off these weights in sin, it will help us run the race uh, that the author describes as with endurance. The pursuit of godliness is difficult. No doubt it will take endurance. Naturally, the race is going to be difficult. It's already hard enough because of outside forces that you can't control. But perhaps you're making it a little bit harder on yourself because you're holding on to these weights and you're holding on to these sins that you are not willing to drop, that you are not willing to give up. There are behaviors that you need to stop doing. There are thought patterns that you need to stop thinking. So here's a very practical question that you can ask yourself in this very moment. Is this hobby or interest or ambition or relationship or fill in the blank, is it drawing me nearer to God or is it pulling me away? Does it enable me to run or is it dragging me down? And this is why this passage is so challenging. Because you're going to stand at that starting line and you're going to begin to realize how much this race might cost you. You're looking down that marked path and you're thinking to yourself, this is a lot of loss. From a worldly and carnal viewpoint, you'll think this doesn't make sense. God, you are calling me to give up so much that I don't want to give up. Why are you asking me to, to surrender this? It was free to start the the race. Salvation was free. But now I'm in the race and God is asking me to surrender these things because he has something so much greater in store for me, but I can't see that and I don't know if this is worth it anymore. I I don't know if I'm willing to, to walk with God and run after him the race that has been marked before us. There's going to be pain. There's gonna be suffering. There's going to be sacrifice. So what do I do in this moment? Where, Lord, I honestly, I want to run the race, 
But what you've called me to do is so difficult and so hard. So what do I do? Well, Hebrews 12.2 gives us the answer. In that moment, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who has marked the race before us. You get this picture of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he would be crucified, calling out to his father and basically saying the same thing. Father, this is too much for me. Would you take this cup from me? If there's any other way, would you just just release this burden of responsibility from me? Would you do this? Because he is looking down that marked path and he is saying, that is going to be a lot of loss. That is going to be painful. It is going to hurt more than anything I've ever experienced in my life. But Father, if this be your will... If this is the path that you've marked for me, then I will obediently take those steps by faith. How was Jesus able to run the race by faith? It tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew what was to come. He saw the end goal. He knew what the mission was and what it was going to accomplish. And so by faith, according to Philippians 2, he was obedient. Obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That's why he did it. Because he knew that there was gain that far outweighed the loss and the pain and the suffering. John Piper once again says, yes, there's going to be loss, but on the authority of God's word, the Christian life is gain. You may not be able to see it right now, but I promise you by the authority of God's word, the pursuit of holiness, the Christian walk is gain. And the hardships of this life are not worth comparing to the reward that is revealed to us later. And so by faith, like Noah, like Moses, like Abraham, I will run the race of endurance. And in this race, I will fix my eyes on Jesus so that I will not grow weary and faint-hearted. That's verse 3. Notice that it doesn't say when I grow weary and faint-hearted. It'd be okay to fix your eyes on Jesus when you're weary and faint-hearted. We'll get to that. Uh, But fixing our eyes in this uh, passage, fixing our eyes on Jesus in this passage is not a remedy, but rather a preemptive measure. We fix our eyes on Jesus and consider him so that we may not grow weary and and faint-hearted. We prepare for the storm prior to it. We look down that bumpy trail that has been marked ahead of us, and before taking a single step, 
we turn our eyes, we fix our eyes to Jesus. In the preparation of the hardship that we will face, that we will have to endure, the difficulty we do endure, we fix our eyes on Jesus now. So be ready. Maybe you sit here today and once again you say to yourself, that describes me. I am weary and faint-hearted. I am struggling. I haven't prepared myself to face the broken and the hostile world, and now I have experienced defeat. I am deflated, and I am defeated. You realize that you've come to this severe place of brokenness because you haven't fixed your eyes on Jesus. If that is you this morning, it is not too late to turn your gaze to him and let all the other things of this world just fade away. Let's do this individually. But as we come through this transition here at First Alliance Church, can I plead with you to let us do this together as a family, corporately? As we turn the page on the transition here, can we march forward as a group of believers together as one body, fixing our eyes on Jesus? I had a guy a couple weeks ago tell me, now that you're the senior pastor, what are we going to do? I didn't know how to answer the question, and then it clicked for me and said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus and let everything else fall in place. And so we together as a family can do this uh, and it can be beautiful. We can see God do amazing things. We can flourish under the direction and leadership of Christ or we can die the death of a thousand paper cuts because we didn't get our way. We didn't get what we wanted because we're not looking at Jesus. Would you come along for the race? Will you run with FAC in endurance, casting off your sin and any other hindrance so that we together as a church family may transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus? I'm greatly looking forward to what God has in store, and I want to invite you to be a part of this next chapter here at FAC as we looked to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. How glorious it is that we as humans can look at this and understand it by the power of your spirit. How wonderful it is, Father, that you are actively engaged in our life and actively calling out to us, Father. I I pray, Lord, uh, that this would be transformative. As we come here on Sundays, uh, week in and week out, that it wouldn't just be a checklist that we mark, but we would be earnestly seeking after what it means to be Christ-like. I pray, Father, for those that are at the starting line right now. Perhaps today was the day that they put their faith in Jesus. Would Would you show them how worth it it is to follow your son, Jesus Christ, even unto death? Help us, Father, turn our eyes to Jesus. I pray, Father, that everything we do would be motivated by that and be motivated by the gospel. 
even as we collect this offering and these tithes, Lord, let us consider this as a spiritual act of worship. It is a way to fix our eyes on you, Lord. Would you in our hearts um, just give us guidance in, in, in how we give, where we give, when we give, Lord. And I pray, Father, for the do- donations that do come in. The, those people would be blessed. That, that you would provide twofold for them what they've given. And Lord, would we as a church use these offerings to glorify you and point people to Jesus so that they may also fix their eyes on Jesus. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.